Hello, and welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Ari Deckard. And I'm Laura Morris. This is our weekly podcast where Laura interviews me about my experiences with Alport syndrome, my three kidney transplants, and my other medical and health experiences. As you might be able to tell, however, we decided to switch things up this week. We thought it would be a little bit fun to turn the tables and have me on the other mic, and most importantly, get Laura's experiences as a spouse of a chronically ill person. Just kind of expand our universe a little bit to think about this as a whole system as opposed to just one person's individual story and journey. So I'm going to try to do my best to be an interviewer, and Laura is going to ably demonstrate how to answer questions without meandering all over the place. Well, we'll see about that. So let's give it a shot. Okay. So Laura, I think I'd like to start with a little bit of background. Okay. So before you met me and you knew about my health issues and all that kind of thing, what was your experience or knowledge about transplants and dialysis and those sorts of things? Okay, that's really interesting. I didn't think you were going to start there or ask me that. Um, we did that episode just a little while ago on transplants and pop culture, but I think like most people, that was my main exposure to organ failure, to transplants was sometimes they're on TV or in a movie. Right. I had never known anybody who had those issues. I'd never known anybody with really even serious health problems. Mm-hmm. My, I, I'd been lucky, and the people that I was close to had been lucky. There wasn't chronic illness or disability in my family or in my close circle. Okay. So I guess then as a follow-up to that, if somebody had said dialysis, transplant, what does the kidney do? Would you, what would you have thought? Would you, would you have known what those things meant? Transplant, sure, right? Any kind of organ transplant. I had the basic idea. You take out what's not working and you replace something from somebody else that is. <laughs> okay. Uh, what the kidney does, I maybe probably would have given you whatever the fifth grade, here's how the human body works explanation. <laughs> right. I don't think prior to knowing you, I knew what dialysis was at all. Sure, that makes sense. Yeah, I think I, I learned that through you, whatever it was the first time you showed me the fistula on your arm and I asked about it, you explained mm-hmm. that concept. Okay, well, that leads me to my next question. So what was it like when you first learned about my Alport syndrome and dialysis and its associated issues? Okay, so I think I briefly mentioned this when we were talking about you getting the job at the Oregon Crusaders mm-hmm. because I had been playing mallet percussion for a year before that. Right. And I knew, okay, we're going to get a new instructor. And one of the first things I heard about you from other people, because I knew somebody who'd been to Lawrence with you, and they mentioned, oh, yeah, he seems like a cool guy. I didn't get to know him very well in college because he was sick a lot. (laughs) Right. And so that was in the back of my head. But then I got to know you mostly through music. Sure. And through this thing that we, this activity we were doing. And I think that your health issues were this kind of quirky trivia fact about you. Okay. Right. They, they were way, way, way more off to the side, right? I noticed very quickly you had hearing aids. That's kind of funny to see somebody who is a percussionist with hearing aids because sure, yeah. it's an image that tells a story, even if it's a wrong one. Uh-huh. And then a few months in, you told us I'm going to be missing some rehearsals because I've got to get a kidney transplant. <laughs> yeah. And that was one of those things where I remember, oh, okay, that's a, that's a bigger deal. And talking to other people about it and them going, oh, yeah, that's a that's a really big deal. He has serious health problems. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was that growing awareness that it went from, this is a quirky fact, like somebody who has 
two different color eyes. A guy I knew in high school had that. Or, you know, something that was incidental and didn't impact life very much. Mm. To that growing awareness, like, oh, this is actually not an insignificant part of your life. And then knowing you more and more. And then after we started dating, it was pretty quickly that you started having really serious problems with the kidney and with the other related health issues that were going on, your stomach problems. You were hospitalized pretty early on in our relationship for the first time and then mm. kind of never got to fully better after that until the kidney eventually failed. Right. Before the transplant came up, though, the whole time that we knew each other up until that point, I was on dialysis. And like you said, you had seen my fistula and I had explained that to you. What was that like? Because that was probably when you first learned about what dialysis was. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, it's really different thinking about whatever image I had of dialysis in my head when you first explained it to me versus hmm. the reality that I've now known for years. And so trying to strip back right. everything I know to think about what I thought then. Because I know I didn't realize the impact dialysis has on a person then. Sure. When you say, I go in several times a week and have a procedure... I don't have this detailed image in my mind of how much time that takes, really, mm -hmm. or the toll it takes on your body, how exhausted you are. Because when you were interacting, when we were doing things together, you didn't seem drained. You didn't seem like you were mm -hmm. really fighting something to participate in life. So I think I had, oh, Ari has to kind of go into this facility and basically take some meds and a booster shot. Even though clearly you'd explain it to me, it was more than that. But I think that's kind of the weight it had in, in the back of my mind. Interesting. Okay. You know, I, I'm thinking that we've talked about several times the, the idea that when you share with somebody else the fact that you have chronic disease or you're living with somebody with chronic illness, that there's this strange thing where that's your normal, but you're sort of putting that on them. And then their reaction is something that kind of you have to deal with and maybe sort of help them manage. And I was just realizing that you've actually been on both sides of that here. And so I'm, I'm wondering, maybe could you talk about that a little okay, bit? That is really interesting. And that's something I haven't thought about at all. <laughs> because it's been so long to think about, oh, yeah, a long time ago I was on the other side of that. Mm-hmm. And we've talked a lot about our experiences of worrying, oh, I'm putting this on a person. Mm -hmm. But then I think back to when that was put on me, if we're going to say it that way, and I didn't take it that seriously. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't like, oh, Ari, you poor thing that you have to deal with this. Because the person that I was interacting with, you were vibrant and cool and you seemed like you had a good life and you didn't seem like a tragic, disabled, sick person. <laughs> and so that meant that whatever you were going through I guess my brain decided, well, if he seems great, then this must not be that bad, hmm. right? That there might have been, in order to correct for the cognitive dissonance I might feel for this person who seems vibrant and full of life and cool, their health problem must not be so serious, right? It must allow for that rather than what he's doing is actually a pretty big deal, the way that you're able to present that energetically or be that hmm, mm -hmm. alive is really about how much work you put in and not about the fact that what you're dealing with isn't a big deal. Sure. Okay. And that makes sense. Definitely. I've seen that on the other side, right? Being <laughs> your spouse, I've basically, I've seen you fake it for everybody. Right. I've seen you go to family events. I've seen you visit with friends and be way more up and on 
than you were even capable of being before we left the house and than you're going to be the next several days. Mm -hmm. And I just say, you know, I know among the people listening to this are our friends and family. <laughs> and I can just picture people thinking, has Ari ever done that for me? And the answer is 100% yes. There's, yeah. there's nobody that you know that you have even a casual level of relationship with that I have not watched you fake a little bit for or put aside energy to be more on for that you're going to feel exhausted later kind of paying back. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, <laughs> yeah, that is true. So then what was that like? You know, we sort of, sort of talked about the dialysis piece, but going back to that transplant then, what was that like? Again, being on the other side, seeing me before and saying, so I'm going to be doing this thing and you realizing, oh, that's more serious. And then I came back like a month two later and you saw me. I mean, I don't even remember how I felt at that point. What was the experience again on the other side there for you? Well, I remember we did all the stuff that kind of a group of friends or colleagues does when someone has major surgery. We all sent you emails. We passed around a card that we signed. Mm -hmm. I remember you coming back and being slower paced, right? You were a person recovering from a surgery. <laughs> right. Oh, I can't lift that. Mm -hmm. Can you do it for me? That kind of thing. Yeah. And immediately you actually had to take more time to do all of the stuff to take care of that new kidney. You know, you were doing the anti-rejection treatments. Oh, yeah, right. Because you were on the immunosuppressants, suddenly you were sicker more often in ways that were visible to me. I think when you're on dialysis and you do your RE thing of being on around people, the lack of energy and the ways that dialysis impacts you, which are much more severe yeah. and much less healthy than having a transplant, but they're much less visible to a casual friend. Right. Whereas the things that impact you when you have a transplant, being on immunosuppressants and getting sick more often... Mm -hmm. And recovering from a surgery and having all these procedures, that's much more visible. So even though you were doing better, I think probably you seemed a bit worse to me in that initial outing, especially because of the level of friendship we had then. I think if we had been spouses then, I would have seen it really differently. I saw, yeah. I saw your third transplant way differently. Yeah. This is a question that's not directly related to what we were just talking about, but I think that it, it can inform... Things. And so I was just curious, we're talking about you meeting me and sort of being on the other side of things that then we have both been on this sort of same side of for many years. But when you're on one side or the other, this kind of information or revelations or things like that, often I think what informs your understanding of or interaction with this kind of news is your personal experience. And you already said, you know, no one that you knew had any chronic illness or anything like that. And I, I know that about you. But can you talk a little bit about up until the point where you met me, or even until we started dating, what was your personal medical history and experience with medicine like? And how do you feel like that informed your reaction to, you know, learning about all of my stuff, and perhaps even later experiences we had together. My own personal medical history before that, it's going to be real short. <laughs> sure. I was a healthy kid. So my experience was I went in and saw a pediatrician and we did all the fun little tests and they wrote stuff down. <laughs> yeah. 
And my dad once at a company picnic playing football broke his hip. That's exciting. And so he was in the hospital for a while. So he had to have a surgery. So I had that like when something serious happens, mm-hmm. right? There's You go to the hospital, you recover, you do all that stuff. But I was never afraid for him. Sure. He was fine. And so I didn't have a lot of anxiety or fear attached to medical stuff. Mm-hmm. But because it didn't come up very often at all, it was one of those things where... It was really out of sight and out of mind. Right. So I do think in some ways that helped when we were dating and you had to be in the hospital. You've had to have multiple surgeries in the time that I've known you. I don't have fear. Hmm. I don't I don't worry that something's going to go wrong with a procedure or something bad will happen. I tend to think we're in the hospital. This is where they take care of things. It's going to be okay. I don't pace around while you're in <laughs> surgery. Right. I tend to have confidence that, we'll, that it will work out. But in other ways, it's a little bit of a shock to the system. And it's not anymore, but it was that, oh, okay, dealing with the hospital and dealing with this as not just a thing that, you know, every many years you'll have some medical problem and need to deal with the hospital. But hospital is now a regular part of life and there are more serious stakes involved. Okay. And had you ever had any procedures yourself? Oh, yeah. When I was a kid, I had uh, like a cyst removed. Hmm. So I had to go in for surgery. And I actually, that was really fun as a kid because <laughs> like the weird experience of, okay, you count down from 10 and then you fall asleep. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I woke up in the hospital and it was taken care of and I got a lot of attention and you get to sit in the hospital bed and watch the Disney Channel or whatever all day, Ooh, play yeah. with some toys. You know, yeah, I didn't have a negative experience. Right. But at the same time, you also had at least a little idea of what it is like to experience anesthesia and things like that. Oh, yeah, sure. So with those things sort of established then, uh, we've talked a number of times about how we all exist within and part of an ecosystem. And that's part of why we're doing this switcheroo episode, because... You know, we've been mostly talking about my experiences, and you've added plenty to those stories as you have been more and more involved. But you also have your own ecosystem that you came from and that you brought with you to our relationship. So what was it like um, when we got together for, for you with people around you as they learned or already knew about my chronic illness or, you know, so that's maybe more close people, but also maybe people not as close who were then learning that I or your new boyfriend had chronic health problems. So this is a really big question. Yeah. And it's tricky to answer. And I want to be really fair and compassionate. So in the initial going, I think it was a fun fact about you the same way like, oh, here's a trivia thing about Ari when I'm talking to people about my new boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And I think I remember some friends of mine like or friends of my parents making jokes like, well, I don't know about this young man's prospects if he doesn't even have two working kidneys, you know, that kind of... <laughs> you know, that kind of joke. And it's sure. funny and it's light. And it because it wasn't like, here's a guy that I started by dating, right? It wasn't that our first meeting was a first date or we went to a coffee shop. Mm. It's somebody that I'd been friends with for a long time. And I'd 
been in love with you for a long time. I had wanted to be together a long time. So once we got together, that initial stage of a romantic relationship had kind of partly been taken care of in the friendship. Mm. We didn't need to get to know each other. We didn't need to have like the first several dates where we're feeling each other out. Mm -hmm. It was more serious. And then pretty quickly after we started dating, you started having more health problems, right? We talked about that. You were hospitalized mm -hmm. for pretty serious issues. And it was really terrible. It was really hard to deal with. It was one of those things that the hardest thing with a medical problem with you, there's the actual pain you're going through or what you're dealing with physically that hurts and is bothering you. But the thing that's, I guess, psychological torture is a situation where they don't know what's wrong. Mm -hmm. That's the worst thing. When it's something where you're having something and it sucks and it hurts and you're going through something terrible, that's hard for me to endure on its own, but it's just one level, kind of. And if we go to the hospital and the doctor says, this thing that sucks for Ari, it's caused by this. I know exactly what it is mm -hmm. and I'm going to fix it and it's going to take this amount of time. Mm -hmm. That's really different than you having all that terrible stuff and dealing with that and them saying, we don't know how to fix it. We don't know how bad it's going to get. We don't know if this could cost him the transplant. We don't know if it's going to get worse and he's going to hurt worse. You know, what horrors are in store? Mm -hmm. And a lot of that initial stuff was in the we don't know what's going on category. Yeah, he's having this terrible pain in his stomach. It's too painful for you to eat. And we don't know how to stop it or fix it. So I was visiting you every day in the hospital. And I was dealing with that. And there were a lot of people in my life who I was really, really close to and who really, really loved me, who I think saw this. And because they loved me and you were new to them, were concerned that being with you and being so serious with you quickly and being so committed to somebody who had a lot of needs or limits mm -hmm. that they perceived, that that would limit me. That I was in the middle of college, I had kind of the bright future ahead of me, <laughs> and that maybe being with you and worrying about you and investing a lot in your health and your illness was going to cut off my potential. Mm. And so these people who loved me very much told me I should break up with you. And that didn't go over well at all. <laughs> and it hurt a lot because I'm dealing with all of my fear and pain about you in the hospital, about you being sick, mm -hmm. about all these unknowns. And that sense that, oh, all these people I care about don't want to see me with this person. Mm -hmm. And... That affected all of those relationships for a long time, a really long time. I really withdrew. And it also meant years later, even, when things were wrong with you, instead of going to my support system and saying, here's all this stuff, I'm so worried, blah, 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 I kind of painted the rosy picture. All right, how's Ari? Oh, he's doing fine. Mm -hmm. There were big things that came up, really scary things that I still think I have never told people I am very close to because I was putting on this show of everything's fine. You don't have to worry about me. You don't have to tell me that I should leave my boyfriend again. <laughs> and so I kind of just said, I'm going to handle this on my own. Whatever emotional support I need, I guess I'm doing that myself because I can't get told that I'm doing the wrong thing again. I can't get told to leave the person I love. Mm-hmm. And I know they didn't mean for that to happen. <laughs> right, of course not. 
but yeah, it was a pretty big thing. I I would say that I know that was really hard for you, and I saw that be hard for you, and I felt really guilty about it. And yeah, I know. <laughs> well, what's what's funny, sort of, is that the exact thing that people who really cared about you that were not me were concerned about was exactly the thing that I was concerned about that and I'm pretty sure I've talked about this before that I really withdrew for a long time in my life even in high school and after from the idea of dating or relationships even though I really wanted to be in romantic connections with people because I didn't want people to be in that position of having to invest so much time and energy and emotional energy in me. I didn't want to bring anybody down that I would be caring about. And the timing of when we first started being together was really terrible in that respect that we had been friends for, for a while, and, and we had been very close. And then when we finally got together was when I started being, like, super-duper sick. And it was immediately very, very intense. And we, we talked about that at the time. And I, you know, I think I said this then, and I definitely want to sort of reiterate it, that that was really hard. And it felt, from my perspective, really unfair to you. And part of the reason I asked that question is because I knew there were other people who thought it was really unfair to you, too. Obviously, selfishly, I'm glad that you stuck around. But I think then, and in some alternate timeline now, I wouldn't blame you if you had said this is too much, too early. Well, um, and I think if you're not in anybody's relationship, especially if they've been dating for less than a year, mm -hmm. you can have that perception of this might just be casual. Yeah. And like I said, we'd kind of done the whole casual stage as friends. Yeah, kind of, yeah. And I was really certain, and I know that sounds weird and a little bit nutty. Sure. But this is my person. <laughs> yeah. You know, kind of, if it doesn't work out with Ari, there might not be anybody else in the world I want to be with. And I'd thought that for a really long time. You know, I don't believe in magic or the mm -hmm. idea of your soulmate or the one person in the world that's for you. I tend to think that people are different levels of compatibility or different percentages. So in the world at a certain time, there is some number of people within the acceptable percentage for you to be romantically partnered with. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that there is nobody in the world who is more compatible with me than you. Yeah. And I believed that then. <laughs> yeah. If I can make a musical metaphor... I'm not very good at singing or matching pitch. I tend to wander. I feel like some people can really nail it when they're trying to match pitch or harmonize. You often sing a fifth away. Yeah. But what I do, instead of saying, this is the note, I've matched it, is I listen for the resonance. Mm -hmm. Right? When you hit the right note and you're trying to match or harmonize with someone, you hear it and you actually feel it. I physically feel, okay, these notes are resonating. This is right. This is unambiguously right yeah and when i'm with you and we're talking and we're joking and we're together we resonate mm -hmm. and i feel whatever the emotional version of that sound is that physical feeling of this is right together this is supposed to be 
Mm-hmm. And I felt it then. And so I was really serious about you. This is going to be my person. This is the most compatible person in the world for me. If it isn't this person, then I'm going to end up with something lesser. Hmm. That's a weird and perhaps even crazy sounding thing to explain <laughs> to other people when, you, when you're with somebody that you haven't been dating in a year. You know, now it's been 10. Right. And so I can say that pretty securely. Like, look, yeah. I was right. <laughs> That's right. I wasn't just kind of a starry-eyed college student mm-hmm. who was really into my boyfriend. You know, it was more <laughs> serious than that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or if you were, you managed to get it right anyway. <laughs> but I think that your explanation is more correct. And I agree with you. So then we we talked about us moving in together extensively. Yeah. <laughs> and we talked about how various people um, had, you know, thoughts or concerns about that. And I we've talked about our own feelings a little bit. But can you talk more about what concerns, thoughts, or feelings you had about moving in with me? I mean, not just, oh, yay, I'm moving in with my boyfriend, but also... Hey, Ari's on dialysis, and we have to time this specifically. Like, there were immediately aspects of the move that were directly tied to the fact that I was very ill. And so that was embedded at the very beginning of us moving in together, that that was going to be part of our life together. So can you talk specifically about, like I said, thoughts, concerns, feelings about that part of moving in together, and also... Was there anything that surprised you? Sure. Yeah, and I, I do want to say before I get into the health medical side, you know, just because this podcast is all about that doesn't mean life is all about that. Mm-hmm. Primarily the things I was thinking about were, yay, we're moving in together. I'm so in love. You know, that was yeah, that was bigger than anything else. Yeah, me too. It overshadowed everything else. And right. so like, oh, right. Okay. So there was also the health stuff. And I think that especially with the moving logistics, that was sort of the inconvenient things we had to deal with, the hassle. Yeah. Nothing surprised me at that point. We had just been through <laughs> a nightmare. You know, you just lost your transplant. We'd been through the whole terrible several-month thing in the hospital. We'd been through terrible drug reactions. Right. You know, things where your life had been on the line. So this was, even though you were now without a kidney, kind of a reprieve because it was inconvenient and annoying and exhausting, but very stable. I think the big thing in moving and then in living together and a thing that's been true our entire relationship, less now because you're, you've got your transplant and you're healthier than you've ever been. Mm-hmm. But for the length of our relationship, when we're together, when I'm going into a situation, I have to think: Could I completely do this and take care of this alone? You mm-hmm. know, if Ari suddenly gets sick, if he is suddenly having a crisis, if he's incapacitated, can I take care of the thing that we need taken care of myself? And take care of him. Right. Right. So we're moving. And when we told that story we talked about, we got to Seattle finally with all of our stuff. And you fell asleep on the couch in the truck. Mm -hmm. And I unloaded everything and unpacked it. And that's kind of that calculus. Okay, we're going to move today. If Ari is suddenly exhausted, if Ari is sick, can I do the whole thing myself Mm -hmm. if I have to? Can I take care of him and do the whole thing myself? You know, when we moved to New York, it was the same thing I was thinking about when we were telling the Columbia housing people what we needed. That's in my head. Okay, what do I need so that if Ari is just out, I've got that covered. Right. When we looked for a new apartment after I graduated, 
a lot of that. Okay, Ari has a transplant, but what if he has to go back on dialysis? How much space are we going to need if that happens? What mm-hmm. am I going to need if the worst happens and I'm the I'm the only able-bodied, competent person in this situation that needs to get something serious done? Right. And I think that does sometimes play a, a weird role in our relationship because when I say that, it's not that I don't trust you to be very, very capable. Mm-hmm. And I'm not your nurse or caretaker. I'm your partner. Mm-hmm. And I'm not always trying to leap into a situation and go, I'll just do it myself because <laughs> you are not capable. Right. But I do think there are those times where you feel like, no, I can do it. You don't have to worry about me. Mm-hmm. And we have to navigate that. Yeah. I will say it's a person who sometimes does really need that, that it's amazing to have a partner who is not just capable of doing that, but really good at that, thinks of that kind of stuff beforehand. And there are times where you've made that invisible to me. And that is just amazing. It's fantastic. It's a real gift that you have and that you have given me. You know, and I also go, oh, well, I wish I didn't have to need that. But I'm also glad that sometimes I'm able to come through and not need that. And so I guess that that brings me to... Again, we've sort of covered this, but talk a little bit about... So you were going to school full-time at the University of Washington. You were an extremely high-achieving student, obviously. You were close-ish to graduating. When we moved in together, you were a junior. You were taking enough classes all at once that, if I remember correctly, you actually graduated a semester early. And you were really on a high-powered, high-achieving, speedy, amazing, smart-person path. So... What was it like going to school full-time, doing that, and living with a chronically ill partner? Well, it was wonderful because I was with you. Okay. (laughs) And the other side of that is the compartmentalization of the fact of you as a sick person. Mm. And I think that maybe that's coming across in a lot of the ways I talk about this or tell stories. Sure. Which is, here's Ari. Ari's fine. This is our relationship. Here's all these interesting things that are going on right now. Also, he's got this chronic illness and he does dialysis every day. Right. And it's in this box. And the fact of it is in this box. My feelings about that are in a box. Yeah. And I think that that did create real distance from between me and a lot of other people. Not close friends, but, you know, we talked about some of that. And mm-hmm. But definitely with casual people, right? You have that feeling when you're in classes with people, especially on this trajectory, you know, we're all aiming for grad school and high-powered or lofty goals. Mm -hmm. They're leaving class to go to eight different study groups and then do this and that and (laughs) that, oh, I'm going home and I'm going to go help Ari set up the machine and then he's going to do this medical procedure for hours in our living room. Right. And that feeling of, oh, your life is different, Mm -hmm. not just because of your health, but also because we were really, really into each other. We very much kind of become our island, our yeah, the relationship yeah. island. And we have friends and it's great. But a lot of times it's sort of you and me together. Yes. Yeah. Neither of us are really particularly social butterfly-y. Well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. We tend to be the kind of people who have a small circle of close friends. And yeah, that's definitely a thing that I would say I saw when you were at the University of Washington is that not that your circle closed really. But, and also not that you would have gone to a million parties because that's not who you are, really. 
but I think that occasionally opportunities for oh, maybe I could make a connection with these two extra people or I could go to this kind of social event either didn't come up quite as often or you were a little bit less available because maybe you had to come home and help me out with some medical thing or you would rather come home and spend time with me. And that's just things that I saw from like being at home. So I can't even say what you necessarily experienced out in the wild, as it were. <laughs> um, but yeah, I agree that that's largely how it worked. So this is going to sound strange, <laughs> but uh, I've been writing a lot of tests for kids at school the last couple of weeks, and so I've been trying to throw in things that change their thinking, and I'm not really trying to change yours, but we often talk about medical things in terms of, well, and then this happened and it was hard and this other thing happened, and it was hard, but we dealt with it. And we just kind of talked about, in some ways, the cons in, in that. So this limited certain, certain aspects and it was a bit of a challenge and you had to compartmentalize and things like that. And I know that for you, that was balanced by the pro of, but you get to live with me, which is very nice. But were there perhaps any pros to living with me as a sick person. I know that sounds weird and I'm not trying to like push pull you here, but you know, there are often actual balances in in things. So I don't I don't even know if this is a good question. I feel like I'm asking it dumb. No, I get what you're saying. And I mean, I feel like I'm going to give you kind of a dispiriting answer, <laughs> which is that mostly no, mostly the sick part just kind of sucks. Yeah, okay. Um the thing that I was talking about earlier, the, like, can I do it all alone, is a thing that you learn about yourself, right? I mm -hmm. can do this. I am capable of a lot. And, you know, oftentimes you learn that about yourself in sucky situations. <laughs> yeah. You know, I remember one time in Seattle, you got really sick. It was super late at night, and you got up and just threw up all over the place in the bathroom. I think you clogged the toilet with the <laughs> oh, with gosh. the vomit. It was everywhere. We had eaten like a giant salad that night as part of dinner. So I remember like the clumps of stuff. And I'm not just trying to gross out the audience, but I feel like these are facts that people need to know so that this story Yeah, but it's working. Comes yeah. across. <laughs> it was it was awful and you were so sick and that happened in the bathroom and then you were exhausted and like crawled back and went to bed. Mm -hmm. And it's that feeling of like, okay, well, <laughs> this definitely needs to get taken care of and there is nobody else to do it. Ari can't. Right. And so you're in that situation where like, okay, well, <laughs> you've got to put your head down and clean up all of this and take care of yeah. this problem because you're the one who has to and you've got to do it. And there were lots <laughs> of times, you know, sometimes in more serious situations, like that's gross and kind of funny. Right. It's like having a puppy. But there are times when, like, you've had a crisis and I've had to get you to a hospital. Right. So I've got to take charge. I've got to both figuratively and literally carry you. Mm -hmm. And I know that I am capable of doing that. And that does translate to other situations. There are times where I'm in a tough situation and I can pretty quickly dial into it, just like with the vomit in the bathroom. Like, well, the only way out of this is I've got to do this hard thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go do the hard thing. Right. I had actually forgotten about that. How nice. Of, <laughs> sort of blissfully. Uh, but that was a tough night for you. I mean, I think it was a tough night for me, but obviously I had completely 
forgotten about it. Well, that's the other half, right? Like, it was a tougher night for you. Eh, maybe. You know, I think that's a thing that I think it's important to convey because it's the biggest part of the equation. If I'm trying to let people know what it's like to be the spouse of someone with chronic illness mm-hmm. or with your particular challenges is that in addition to you're going to deal with the hard thing, the person that would normally be your support system is dealing with the actual brunt of the hard thing. They're going to have it worse. And so that's the kind of double challenge, kind of the, mm-hmm. like the two different cuts, is that this is hard. It's emotionally tough and bad things happen. I'm dealing with them. And the first person I would run to for comfort or to talk it out is a person who is dealing with the same thing and they've got it worse. Sometimes you are unconscious yeah. or you're on drugs that you're out of your mind. Like you can't help me. Mm-hmm. You can't comfort me because you are actually incapable. Right. Or if you're not unconscious or you're not out of it, it would be unfair to ask that, right? Mm-hmm. If you're going through a really terrible health crisis, now is not the time for me to go, okay, but here's why your crisis is really tough on me. Mm-hmm. I'm really having a hard time with the thing that's threatening your <laughs> life right now. <laughs> and so that's kind of another thing where... Sometimes you go it alone mm-hmm. because your partner can't be there for you. Right. And that is, at times, really hard. Yeah, of course. Of course. So then, kind of chronologically here, we already talked a lot about how Home Hemo helped both of us a great deal. And I just wanted to give you a chance to talk about maybe your perspective on that a little bit more, if you had anything you wanted to add about that. Home Hemo, yeah, it changed our lives. It gave me you back more. You know, Mm -hmm. I was just talking about you being incapacitated sometimes and not being able to be there. And you getting home from dialysis and just sleeping for hours because you're exhausted. Or even if you're not sleeping, you're really tired. You can't be energetic. Having dialysis at home so you didn't have to leave or spend hours and hours away, that we could both be together. And since you're doing it every day, it's not taking the same toll. So you have more energy. I would say to anybody on dialysis, seriously consider either home hemo or if peritoneal is your thing, do peritoneal. Sure, yeah. You know, and I know it's not possible. Some people have to do in-center. Yeah. But even if the needle aspect intimidates you, Mm -hmm. and that's very intimidating for a lot of people, it's it was kind of grossed (laughs) me out. It was intimidating for me. Mm -hmm. I would really encourage people, again, you're in a hard situation, put your head down and do the hard thing because it's so much better. It's better on the patient's body. So I feel like in addition to giving me you back in the moment, it's probably given me more years with you. Yeah. Because it doesn't take the same toll on you. And it's so much more freeing. You can do things so much more on your own terms. I really am a big believer in that. It's the it's the next best thing to a transplant. <laughs> yeah, it is. And there's a wide gulf there with yes. it being the next best thing, but still. So we talked about moving to New York, and we talked about our visit to New York to check out law schools and things, but I feel like we didn't really talk about your perspective as much. And you know, I remember that being a very involved, intense, intense process. Um you know, you took the LSAT, all kinds of stuff like that. So can you talk about the law school 
application and prep process, both in general, because I think that's really interesting, and also then how your decision-making process was affected by the fact that, hey, you were with weird old me and all of my medical stuff. Well, talking about the process in general could be its own podcast yeah. f for a whole different audience and <laughs> several hours long, but, you know, it's really intense. And especially the stuff I wanted to do was insanely competitive and really demanding. And I really had to dive in. And while you were dialyzing, you know, I was in a room next door so that if I heard an alarm, I could leap out. But I was giving myself timed tests and practicing and yeah. working on all that. And I would say just to kind of bridge back to what we were talking about, the University of Washington. Mm-hmm. That feeling of distance, I feel that so much more with my law school experience at Columbia because I think I've never actually watched the movie The Paper Chase. People bring it up all the time <laughs> yeah, or yeah. the book 1L mm -hmm. where I think the image people have in their heads of law school, the pop culture image, I don't think it's actually inaccurate where it's so intense and it really is. And it's that feeling of here you are, you've been in the top 1% of your class your whole life and now... Here you are in a group of people who are all like that. Uh -huh. And now you have to stand out again. And can you do it? And this material is incredibly hard. It's very demanding. And there's kind of that expectation that now's your time kind of as the law student to be super selfish and self-involved. And if I need to spend hours studying, and if I need to put my personal life aside and say goodbye to my family and mm -hmm. whatever, you know, I'm going to do that. And I just did not do that. That wasn't on the table. Mm -hmm. You know, I did all my law school classes. Then I came home and I studied while you were on dialysis next to me. And I took breaks to deal with stuff on the machine. If your blood pressure was low, if other things were happening. And also, we'd made that commitment to each other on the weekend. When you have the day free of dialysis, I was not spending a bunch of time studying. I was going out and doing things in the city with you. Mm -hmm. That we kind of made that commitment to each other. We need to go make the most of everything we have. Right. That as much as I really, really, really wanted to succeed, wanted to be awesome, it's not worth sacrificing every spare moment I have with you in those valuable years where you are here with me and doing okay. You know, I don't know what's next around the bend. I don't know when the next, and I know this sounds melodramatic, but when the next disaster is that mm -hmm. could take you out of commission for a long time, that could send you in the hospital for months, that could do other terrible things to you, so let's go do it. Let's go have fun now. Let's go be together now. And so I budgeted for that in a way that I'm sure to maybe some of my peers who didn't know the whole situation, like, oh, you spent the weekend going to go see cheap Broadway shows and walking in the park. You know, it seems like yeah. I'm not taking this seriously. And it's just a different thing. But I did feel distance. Okay. So chronologically, we've basically arrived at the same point where we were with my story that I've taken a great deal of time telling. So I was thinking maybe we could summarize a little bit. I'm hoping that you can talk about different aspects of being the partner of somebody who is chronically ill. So I'm going to ask you several questions about that. Okay. Okay. So first, how has being in a relationship with a chronically ill partner been challenging in summary? In summary? Yes. Okay. <laughs> you know, I think that I've said the things that are the most challenging. It's hard to see somebody you love in terrible pain. Mm -hmm. 
it's hard to be so afraid for the person you love. And this has been really challenging for me when I think about putting together this podcast and about this question right here. How do I explain this to people? How do mm -hmm. I tell them what it's like? Because I don't want to be too bleak. I don't feel like my life is bleak or my life is sad or horribly hard and tragic. And I, I want to, in general, be really optimistic and hopeful, especially because I feel like that is the story I feel like I've experienced and what I felt. I've watched you go through really hard things and I've watched you work so hard and be so strong and persevere and achieve your goals, even though you had so such tremendous setbacks. Like, I think that is tremendously inspiring. Hmm. And so I think your story is a hopeful one and an optimistic one. And so if I'm doing this podcast, I want to convey that. I don't want to convey having a chronic illness is a nightmare and it's horrible and it will destroy everything. Mm -hmm. But if we're talking about the challenges, like on my end, I'm horribly afraid for you. I'm horribly afraid that because of experiences we've had in the past, okay, he has this cough or he's having stomach problems. You know, and that could just be the food we had for dinner last night didn't agree with you and it's going to go away in a couple days. <laughs> right. Or it could be this is the thing that's a sign of something much more serious that eventually is going to lead to hospitalization. You're going to lose your transplant. It's going to take years off your life. It could be the thing that kills you. Mm -hmm. And that's a terrible thing to say as I'm sitting here across from you looking you in the face because yeah. it's a thing that we don't talk about but is very present. Right. You know, I worry, is Ari going to die? Mm -hmm. When might that happen? And I don't have a funny, happy, optimistic way of telling that to people. Mm -hmm. That's a fact. It's not the only fact, but it's there's no denying that it's present. Okay. So then how has being in a relationship with a chronically ill partner been rewarding? It's rewarding because you are you. It's not rewarding because of the illness. And I really, I want to emphatically say, because I feel like there's that narrative of the noble suffering patient and, right. you know, oh, this made you a better person and you go out and make everyone else better. You are not better because of your illness. Mm -hmm. I do think that you make other people's lives better and you've made mine better, but that's because of who you are despite that. And it's about the person you've worked to be despite your illness. This is not a mixed blessing that landed in your <laughs> life. It's it's real bad luck. Yeah. So it's rewarding because I get to be with you, not because of the disability. Okay. How has being in a relationship with a chronically ill partner been surprising? Well, I guess there's lots of surprising stories, some of which we've already talked about, some <laughs> of which are going to come up. Like, things come up that surprise you. Yeah. Uh, mostly in bad ways. <laughs> but again, I think that there are times, especially doing this podcast, right, where we look back on some story about some insane thing that happened or a thing that we had to do. Mm -hmm. And it was long enough ago now where I think, oh, I did that or we did that together. Yeah. Like, that's incredible. I can't. I remember we did that. And uh -huh. so I guess there's that. This is so corny, but like you are surprised by what you're capable of or what you can adapt to and live with. Mm -hmm. I agree. Okay, so finally, how has being in a relationship with a chronically ill partner been normal? Well, that's what I mean when everything isn't just about your health or your medical stuff. Mm -hmm. We have days or weeks at a time where I don't think about the fact that you have this thing. Right. And we've been together for years and years, and we've had 
long stretches of those kinds of days. Yeah. You know, I, I think somewhat dramatically I described to a friend of ours that your health problems are like a ghost, <laughs> right? So if you're living in the house where a ghost is haunting, most of the time you're just doing regular stuff in the house. And then every once in a while, the ghost pops up and you are haunted by the ghost. You're scared. You're, you do whatever mm -hmm. you have to do. And then you go back to living in the house. And that's kind of what that's like. Everything's fine until it isn't. Everything's fine until it isn't. Okay. Is there anything you would do differently or would have done differently? There are times when I look back on something and think, I wish I had been more patient or I had cut Ari more slack. <laughs> okay. You know, that over time, I am better at gauging how sick you are, mm -hmm. where I was not as good at that early on. So I think about early on, oh, he was really sick. He was really trying. And I thought he was not that poorly off at the moment. Mm -hmm. And I expected more from him when I should have been doing less. I think that's another thing that is my challenge as your partner. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I've got to be the one to let you off the hook, right? If you're really sick and I can see that you're sick, I've got to be the one to tell you, stop pushing. Hmm. Let yourself be sick. Let yourself go to bed. Go get better. Stop trying to be so okay for everybody. Mm -hmm. I'm the one who's there, who's on the ground that can make the call saying, <laughs> right. no, really, you're sick. Let yourself off the hook. Go be sick. Mm-hmm. And then conversely, sometimes I'm the one who has to push you anyway, right? Like, I think you can do it. Mm -hmm. I know you feel terrible, but come on, let's do one more lap around the nurse's station while you recover from this surgery. Right. You have the energy. You can, you'll feel better if you do this. Come on, you can do this. Mm -hmm. And I have over time gotten better at better at making that call about deciding which one I'm supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And so I guess, yeah, looking back, there are times when... I wasn't as good at making those calls, but I guess it worked out. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And I want to be clear, I, I wasn't trying to push for like, well, I really wish you had been more patient because no, I was truly actually curious. And I think that what you said is very true. Um, I am pretty good at managing and understanding my own energy levels and my own capabilities in any given situation, but having you as backup and sometimes a cheerleader or coach has definitely made so many situations better to say the least and sometimes um, workable when it wouldn't have been workable. Again, still summarizing, <laughs> do you feel like there are any ways that this experience, at least thus far, has changed your perspective? Probably. <laughs> I know that sounds flippant. Definitely realizing that, and I know this is, again, one of those cliche things people say, you know, make the most of the time you have. Mm -hmm. But I feel like we do that in a very specific way, right? You're healthy now. So let's plan to go do something good with the time. Right. And that doesn't mean like live like there's no tomorrow. You know, we still both have to like <laughs> do our jobs and our adult responsibilities. Yeah. And, you know, we're saving for a retirement that I hope will be long and we'll both get to enjoy. Mm -hmm. But there also is that feeling of let's try to save up and take a really cool fun vacation because these are the years when we can do it. You know, let's not think, oh, someday we'll go do these awesome things. Right. We really have to put aside the notion of someday. And if you want to make something happen, mm -hmm. you've got to think about it now and do the thing that you most want to do that you really want. And make sure that it's not a thing that got put off for someday and then that got derailed yeah. by reality. Right. 
Yeah, I fully agree. I think that that's one of the main ways that sort of, I was going to say coming to terms with my health, and that sounds too dramatic and wrong, but that as I've gotten older, that, that my perspective has definitely changed in that exact way too, that as a younger person, I had this idea, no, it, I've got to wait till it's just perfect and the right time to do this and the right time to do that. And I must wait until I have done school and just the right kind of school and all kinds of things like that so that then life can start all capital letters as, you know, certain teenagers do. But I wasn't necessarily a teenager even and I was still thinking like that. And, I think adults do that. There's that oh, idea yeah. of someday there will be the right time for this. Yeah. I will eventually be the kind of person who <laughs> does all this stuff. And then when I am that kind of person, I will do X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And I think that just make the right time. Decide that now is the right time. Yeah. And if, if it's something you really want, if you're putting things off for someday because you don't really want them, relieve yourself of that. Mm -hmm. Oh, I don't really want that that bad. But if it's something you really do, the right time is now or is as soon as you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. I exactly that's the as I've gotten older that's become far more my watchword that well if not now when so finally is there anything else you would like to add well I know you're hosting the show and you're doing a great job oh thank you but can I can I ask you one question okay how are you feeling this week <laughs> um I'm sick like sicky sick 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 I had to take my very first day off of work this year on November 1st, which means that I did accomplish two months <laughs> of um, sick-free by exactly no days. That was really unfun. I hate, hate having to call out of work, but I'm really stuffed up. I have a bit of a sinus headache. I've got a cough. My throat is sore. This is exactly the time of year that all the other teachers are sick as well. Many, many students are ill and... Um, it's just a prime, prime season for somebody like me to just catch everything. You know, it's also the kind of thing where, like, we encourage kids to come to school kind of no matter what. I certainly experienced that when I was in high school. Like, no, it's really important to be at school. And, you know, child care is difficult and there's all kinds of issues. And so, you know, I had a kid tell me this week, like, oh, I can't do any work in class today. And I was like, really? Why? And she was like, well, I've got bronchitis. And I was thinking like... Get away from me. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, well, first of all, that's a very legit excuse to not be feeling well enough to do work in school. In fact, it's so legit. You should not be here. What are you doing? And also, yes, please stay far away from me. And I'm going to put up a Purell barrier just between us, if at all possible, just constantly be spraying it. And she's not alone in that. You know, it's just everybody's kind of sick and it's darker and everybody's kind of more moody, but that's not really related to um, my health. So I'm sick. The good-ish news about that is we have one of our weirder weeks of school coming up. Tuesday is election day, which is a no-student day. So teachers get together and do work and workshops. So because of that, and because then Friday is Veterans Day, which is also no school, we decided that our whole school is going on field trips on Monday. So Monday's field trips, Tuesday, no students, Wednesday, Thursday, we attempt to teach something, and then Friday is the beginning of a three-day weekend. And so what that means is I have a much lighter load this week than I usually would. 
in a certain way. And that will be nice to be able to kind of give myself a breather after several weeks of kind of nonstop go, go, go. Um, and I'm hoping that will give me a little bit of time to recover and let my body rest and attempt to heal itself. Gosh, I hope so too. It's, <laughs> I think that's comes across a little bit, the amount of thinking that you and I both do about your schedule and how sick you are versus when the next time you're going mm -hmm. to be able to rest is. Yeah. It's a little bit like managing the status bars in a video game. Okay, his health is down this far, but if we get to checkpoint two, we're going to be able to get the first aid pack. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know how do I make this transition. It's, it's often awkward. It is often awkward. Well, in that case, I think that wraps up our episode for this week. KidneyCast episodes are available on iTunes and Stitcher. Please, please, please review us. Give us all the stars you can. It allows other people to see and be aware of this podcast, which I think some people like, which would be nice. It is also available on Lara's website, L-A-R-R-A-M-O-R-R-I-S dot com. The extra R's are for quality. Facebook.com slash KidneyCast. We're on Twitter at KidneyCast, and you can email us all those very important letters that we love, love responding to on the podcast, KidneyCast at gmail.com. Thanks for talking to me, Lara. Thank you. Thanks for taking your turn in the hosting spot. It's been really fun, and yeah. thank all of you for listening. You know, it's kind of like we had one person in the position of host and then we took the original one out and put a new person in. Hmm. I'm trying to think if there's like an appropriate metaphor for that that we could use. No, I don't think there is. <laughs>